And so what we're going to look at today is things to remember. Things to remember. Now, context. Paul is writing to a pastor. His name is Titus. <clears throat> he's pastoring on the island of Crete. And what, what Paul's doing is he's, ha- he's having Titus take over the reins of the leadership of those churches in Crete. And he's helping uh, uh, Titus to establish elders. He's helping Titus to get organization in the church. And then he's going to say in this last chapter, now remind the people in Crete of these things, these important things in this chapter. Remind them of these things. Now, it was important because not only to them, but this is going to be in the written word of God. All scripture is inspired by God. It is useful, profitable for all people. And so what's being reminding the Christians in first century are things to be reminded for us here in the 21st century. And you know what? We need to be reminded because we forget things. And the older I get, the more I forget. And, and if you have any age on you, you know what I'm talking about. And so we need to be reminded of these things also that we're going to be reminded of here in the book of Titus. You know, I was, uh, we have a, a new thing going on in the Hoppy House right now because uh, um, all our kids are growing up on us. We are officially empty nesters. I mean, all our kids, and, and our kids had the audacity to get married and move out of Lexington to different cities. How dare them do that? I'm trying to pray them all back to Lexington right now. But what we're doing in the meantime, what we're doing is we're visiting each kid. We're trying to visit a kid a month. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to go to their city, take them out for lunch or dinner, whatever else. And so last Saturday I was with uh, my second son, David, and we took him out to lunch in Charlotte. Had a great time talking and everything. We got one of those father-son discussions about <clears throat> him being grown up now. He's off the payroll. It's, it's kind of cool. Empty nest. Well, all my, all my kids are off the payroll. It's awesome. But he was talking about the fact he's got his own house now. He's got a good job, everything else. And we're in a transition period right now because Pop Hop, which is my nickname, Pop Hop is no longer just, you know, his leader Pop Pop's like another adult that's becoming his friend. I've always been David's friend, but it's a transition that it's more my job now to be his friend as an adult as it is to be his leader. And so we talked about it a little bit, but I said, yeah, I get that. I, I'm, not, I'm not your leader as much more because you've got your own home, own wife, own job. Fine, we're, we're just going to be friends now as adults, but I'll always be Pop Pop, I told him. I'll always remind you of certain things, things like after you leave our house and you're driving on the roads, be careful because there's a lot of dumb people on the roads, and if you're not careful, you'll get in an accident like you've already gotten to before. All four of my kids had accidents, and it drove me nuts. And every time they leave the house, still to this day, I'll remind them, be careful driving home, be careful. There's still things I'll remind them of, like things like, uh, debt is dumb. You know, don't be dumb and get in debt. Avoid credit cards like the plague. And I'll remind them, you know, the Bible says if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you get in credit and you get in debt, you're a slave to the lender. I'll remind them of those things. I'll remind them about church, too. I still do this day. I say, get in a good Bible teaching church and stay in church. And they are, and they're doing that. But I'll, I'm, I'm going to keep reminding them of these things because I'm still going to be pop pop reminding them of these things. And why, why I bring that up? Because Apostle Paul was the spiritual father to these Christians in Crete. He says, and I want Titus to keep reminding of those, them of these things because I'm their spiritual father and I want them to do well. I want them to have a blessed life as Christians instead of a cursed life. 
And so this is still, through the inspired, authoritative word of God, the reminders for us today, too. And the Apostle Paul, through his pen and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reminding us of some things that if we want to have a blessed life, we need to live out these principles in God's word. So are you ready to study it, church? All right, let's study it. Jump right in. Titus chapter 3. And it's interesting, Paul starts out, right, there's our words, chapter 3, verse 1. What's he say? First two words. Remind them. There it is. And I'm going to give you four things from the Apostle Paul this morning. Before we get into it, you're being reminded of. Number one, he's going to remind us what we should do. Number two, he's going to remind us what we were before Christ. Number three, he's going to, he's going to remind us what God did for each one that's saved. Number four, we're going to see what God expects of us. And we'll lay that out at the end of the, end of the message. So number one, remind them of what they're supposed to do. Look what we're supposed to do. Remind them, it says, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, interesting, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, these are things we're supposed to do, to be gentle, showing every consideration, notice, for what? All men. So there's a little laundry list there. These are the things we're supposed to do. First thing on the list, by the way, be subject to governing authorities. Learn as Christians to come under those that are in authority above you. Learn to be subject to those that are in government. Be subject to those authorities. Be subject to those that are in authority over you in work. You know why that's important? Because the best workers and the best citizens should be Christians. There's no business for us to be disobedient to those that are put in authority over us. We should be obedient is what it's saying. It's part of our witness. And parents, by the way, one of the things you could teach your kids, if you want your kids to have blessed lives, teach your kids to be obedient too. Teach your kids to come under authority. Teach your kids that to come under the authority of teachers first and then coaches and then eventually bosses because life will go well with them if they learn to come under authority and be obedient. It's a part of being, living a blessed life. Come, learning to uh, be obedient to those in our authority. And then the other thing it says we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be ready for every good deeds. Why? Because Christians should be doing good deeds. What does it say about our witness? Shine your light in such a way that others may see your what? Good works. And they too may glorify your Father in heaven. A part of our witness, a part of our light in this world is we're doing good for people. We're going to talk about that at the end of the message, too. We're supposed to be engaging. We're supposed to be engaging in good deeds and helping people and doing good on the behalf of the name of Christ in this world. Remember what Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of them, what do you say? You're doing unto me. And when you're engaging in good deeds for other people, you're, you're doing the ministry of Jesus and you're actually ministering to Jesus because those people are created in Jesus' image and he cares about them and we should too. Engaging in good deeds. And then it also says we're not supposed to, in doing things, we're not supposed to malign. Don't malign anyone. What does the word malign mean? It means to vilify. It means that a part of our, our Christianity is we're careful with the words that we say. James chapter 3 says we're supposed to tame our tongues. We're to be careful because this mouth, the Bible says, has the ability to bring life to people or death. This mouth and these words have the ability to bless people or curse people. This mouth has the ability to heal people or hurt people. That's why it says in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for building others up according to the need of the moment, that it might give those. It might give grace to those who hear it. And Christians, we got to be careful with this. Because if we're, if we're hurting people with our mouth, 
and we're cursing people with our mouth, we're not having the spirit of Christ. What did Jesus do with his mouth with the people that were killing him and mocking him and spitting on him on the cross? He didn't curse them back. What he did is this. Father, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. And that's a good model for us. If someone is hurting us, instead of cursing them back, instead of hurting them with our mouths, what we should do, pray for them. If you're going to talk about somebody else, talk to them, talk to God about them, and pray for them. Jesus says, bless those who persecute you, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. That's what he actually said. And we should be doing that with our words. Our words should bring blessing to people instead of cursing the people. And then it also says, not only we're not to malign them, we're supposed to be uncontentious. The word there in another translation is peaceable. Why are we supposed to be peace, people of peace? Because our Savior is the Prince of Peace. Our Savior told us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Our Savior, the one we follow, said this. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Je- Jesus told us in his, his word, uh, Romans 12, uh, in that chapter, it says this, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. We're to be peacemakers, because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, uncontentious. And it also says we're to be gentle. Now, another version says meek. Now, let me tell you something. Meek doesn't mean weak. Gentle means this. It means your strength is under the master's control. It was actually a word for a stallion, a stallion that came under the taming of a master. We're supposed to have our tempers tamed, our, our passions, our anger tamed, because we're gentle. Our, 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 we're, under the, we're, we're strong still, but our strength is under God's control, under the master's control. Gentle. Showing, this, look at this, last thing we're supposed to do. Showing consideration <laughs> for all men. If you circle things in your Bible, circle that word all. A part of what we're supposed to be doing in Christ's name is showing consideration, or I would say love, for all people. You know, we have a thing going on in our office right now. We do a Wednesday morning staff meeting. We're all reading a book together. We do a book every six weeks, and we study the two chapters. But another thing we've been doing lately in our staff meeting is we've been talking about values. What's our values as a church? We made a whole list on my whiteboard, on my office wall. And some of our values we put on there as well, one of our values, obviously, as a church, is the Word of God. A preeminent place in the value culture of this culture of our church, Calvary Chapel, is we're going we're gonna to study God's Word. If you come to Calvary Chapel, you're going to learn the Bible. Because God honors His Word even above His name. And so we value God's Word because God values His Word. He places a high place, a premium, on the importance of being in His Word. And another thing we put on the, on the list there of things we value is we value also worship. Worship's important to us in our value system here in this culture. We actually put on there on our values, spirit-filled worship. And I'm standing in the back this morning, I'm reminded as people are raising their hands and having passion in the worship. That's a value here in our culture. And you know why it's, what a value is? A value is backed up by action. And we have spirit-filled worship here in this church. That's one of our values. Another one of our values we put on the board is excellence. And if we're going to do anything for God, we want to do it with excellence for His glory. We don't want to do things half-heartedly. We want to do things diligently because excellence is important because we're doing it for the the glory of God, right? 
But another thing we put on our values, we had about seven things on our value list. The other thing we put on our values, interesting, is we're going to love, here at Calvary Chapel, we are going to love all people. All people. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic standing is. We're going to love you if you come to this church. It doesn't matter what your race is. We're going to love you because in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in Christ. Heaven's represented by every tribe and every nation around the, the throne of God, and we should be too. We're going to love all people. It doesn't, hey, listen, it doesn't even matter if you're from New Jersey or New York. <laughs> we're going to love all people. Whether you're a Yankee or a Southerner, we're going to love you here in this church. We, hey, listen, even if, even if you're a Gamecock or a Clemson person, I'm stepping on some toes right now, aren't I? I had the first service, I had some guys out on the patio, and the one guy was walking in, he had that Gamecock emblem right there, and I said, hey, way to go, go Gamecocks. And then there was somebody else in the middle of the patio, two guys in orange, literally orange with the, with the claws and stuff or whatever, and they said, Pastor John, what are you telling them, go Gamecocks? They said, I play both sides of the fence. I'm going to love all people. I got friends on both teams, I will, I will love all people, but we're supposed to show consideration to all people. Because that's the spirit of Christ. Jesus had in his disciples, he had demon-possessed people that came out of that and he set them free. Jesus had possibly uh, a possible prostitute as one of his, Mary Magdalene, tradition says she might have been a prostitute. Jesus had zealots that came to, Christ, came to him. Jesus had poor people he had rich people. He didn't care. He was going to love all people. And that's what we're supposed to do, church. We're to love all people. doesn't matter what your background is, what your race is, what your money is, what your geographic growing up was. doesn't matter. We're going to love, listen, we're going to love all people. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. God shows no partiality towards anybody, and either should we. Consideration for all people. That's what we're supposed to do. <clears throat> now let's look at where we were before Christ. This is amazing. Look at this list of where we were before Christ. Look at verse 3. For we also, notice the word we. Paul includes himself in this. Paul knew he was the chief of sinners before he came to Christ. For we also were foolish ourselves. Look at this list. Disobedient deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Before Christ, we were prisoners. You know what we were prisoners to? We were prisoners to our lusts and our pleasures. In Christ, we're set free from that. Spending our life in malice. The word malice there, there means evil, in envy, hating, and hating one another. Can anybody look at that list besides me and relate to it? Do you remember the mess you were in before Christ? Remember the way before Christ set you free, you were deceived? And not only were you deceived, you were a prisoner to your own flesh. And not only that, you, instead of having a spirit of love, you had some hate and some anger and some bitterness going on. And not only did you hate others, you hated yourself because of the way you were living because you couldn't get set free from it. And now what did Jesus do? Man, set you free. I don't know about you, I was singing that song this morning, thank you God for saving me. 
I sang at both services saying, oh, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I know where I'd be if God didn't save me. I'd be an alcoholic. I was going right down that direction when God just grabbed me at 17 years old and rescued me, saved me from my own deception, my disobedience, my rebellion, my sin that I was enslaved to. Even by 17, I was a slave. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, Lord. You know what's important to remember where you were? It keeps you humble. It makes you remember, man, if it wasn't for God, I would be a mess. And not only that, you know why it's important to remember where you were before Christ? It keeps you from judging others. Because you know if it wasn't for God rescuing you, you accept the grace of God, there go I. And there's no place in the body of Christ to be self-righteous, to be judgmental, to be looking down your self-righteous nose at anybody and judging them because if it wasn't for Christ in his love and his grace rescuing you, you'd be a mess too. We all were, right? Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you, God, we're not what we used to be. Now, we're not what we're supposed to be yet, but at least we're not what we used to be. And one day... He will make us what we're supposed to be when we see his face, and then we too will be like him. But in the meantime, we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that we're not the mess that we were because of your grace. And that's the next thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at his grace next. The next section is now we go from what we're supposed to do to what we were to what God has done. This is a high, high mountain section right here. This section describes God's grace beautifully. Look, look what it says, this, verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind, what, appeared. The word appeared there in the Greek is a word from which we get epiphany. It means that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in that manger, God's love and kindness appeared, epiphanied into this world. Amazing. And then it says, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his what? Don't ever think your salvation has anything to do with your deeds. It doesn't. You're not saved based on your deeds of righteousness. You're saved only by his mercy. And that's important for us because the rest of the world... 90% of the world, if you ask them, how are you saved? If you were to die today and you were to face God and you were to say, why should I let you into heaven? Almost the majority of the world would say this, because I'm a what? I'm a good person. Because I go to church. Because every time those church doors are open, I'm there. Now, don't stop coming to church, please. This is a place you're going to grow. This is a place you're going to become disciple. This is a place where you're going to get, get in God's word. So it's, church is important, but here's a question. Does it save you? No. We're saved only by God's grace and grace alone. You're not saved by your works of righteousness, but by his mercy. 
And then it says, by the washing of regeneration. Interesting, regeneration means to be born again. And the moment you come to a true faith in Jesus Christ, you're given a whole new life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, right? And so regeneration. And notice, when you're born again, you're washed. You're washed by what? By the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all your sin. You're, you're just totally washed of all. And here's how it works. You trust Christ as your Savior, and Jesus does this. He takes your sin, and he nails it to the cross, because he said, paid in full. And then he takes his righteousness, and he clothes you with his righteousness. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And Isaiah 118 says, even though your sin is scarlet, through Christ you could be white as snow. And then God takes your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. It's amazing. It's the best deal you ever get. You trust Christ to be your Savior and your Lord. He'll take your sin, nail it to the cross, and then wrap you and clothe you in his righteousness. It's an amazing deal. And I know that. I know that one day when I face a holy God, Jesus Christ, according to 1 John chapter 2, is going to become my advocate. Literally in the Greek it means he's going to be my lawyer. He's going to stand before God and he's going to be, then it says, the propitiation, which is the satisfaction for God's righteous requirements for my sin. And he's going to say, he's going to say to the Father, Jesus is for me. He's going to say, don't judge John Hoppy for what he's done. Judge John Hoppy for what I've done for him. Because he trusted me to be my Savior, and to be my, or trusted me as his Savior and his Lord. He'll stand before the Father and say, Father, I did this with nail-pierced hands. He's going to say, I did this for John Hoppy. And then the Father's going to say to me, come on, enter now into the joy of your Master. And I'm going to be flipping in heaven and just say, yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to enjoy the rest of eternity in heaven with the one who did this for me. And I'm going to worship him with all my heart for the rest of eternity because of that grace. Washed by the regeneration of being born again in him. And then it also says, renewed by the Holy Spirit. What does renewal mean? It means that, that when we repent, Acts 3.19 says we repent, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And he starts renewing our lives. It's wonderful. What does it renew mean? It makes, he makes us new. He makes us, gives us a whole new lease on life. Renewed. Renewed by the Holy Spirit. And then it also says justified by his grace. Now, the word justified, interesting word. It means the moment you trust Christ, you're justified. Literally translated, it means declared righteous. It's awesome. The moment I trusted Christ, he washed me with his blood, and I'm righteous. Is it because of my deeds again? No, because of his death for my sin upon the cross. And it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word justified, here's a way you can remember it. It's just as if you had never sinned because you're washed by his blood. Justified. And then the last thing it says on the list that God's done for us, he's made us heirs, heirs of eternal life. What does the word heir mean? 
means you've got a big inheritance awaiting you, undefiled. It's, it's going to be an incredible gifting that comes to you when you come into God's presence and you die because it says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's why Romans chapter 8 says this. It says, you don't have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but a spirit of sonship by which you could cry out, Abba, Father, which means Daddy, because God's Spirit bears witness to your spirit that we're children of God. And then it goes on and says, and not only are we children of God, but we're joint heirs with Christ. Everything Christ has in heaven in regards to paradise is going to be given to us. And if you read the last book in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, here's some of the giftings we're going to be given as heirs. We're going to be in a place for the rest of eternity in heaven where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And that would be awesome. No more pain. No more sorrow. A place where God's going to wipe away every tear. A place where God's going to make all things new. A place where his glory is going to be so powerful that there's going to be no need for lamp or light because he's going to light up all of heaven just with his glory. It's going to be a place, too, I'm looking forward to this, a place where we're going to see Christ face to face, and then we, too, will be like him. Sin will be gone. We'll not only be free from the penalty of sin, we'll be free from the power of sin because sin will be gone. Amen? Heirs. We're all rich spiritually if we have Christ. Oh, awesome. You know, I was in our, one of our staff meetings this week, too. I was praying with Pastor Steve and a couple of other pastors and stuff. And we do prayer requests. One day we'll do prayer requests of all the prayer requests that come in. And, and my prayer request that I was supposed to pray for was I was supposed to pray for Steve, an alcoholic, that God would set him free. So I'm praying for Steve. And I'm praying that as an alcoholic, God would set him free. And Pastor Steve, after we were done praying, he just had one of those looks on his face that was inquisitive. And he was just... He was shaking his head, and Pastor Steve, are you turned Pastor? I said, Pastor Steve, what are you shaking your head about? And he goes, I thought when you were praying for Steve, alcoholic, you were praying for me. And he goes, I just had a senior moment that I'm going, it's Pastor John, because, because he came to Christ through U-Turn for Christ, and he was a part of meetings where he had to have to say in 12-step meetings and stuff, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Steve Mateer, and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm an addict. And he said, it just brought back memories. And then I remembered, Pastor Steve said, praise God, you weren't praying for me anymore. Because God's grace has set me free. Thank you, God, for saving me. Amen? God's grace is amazing. Okay, let's close up our, our, our message now with things that God expects of us as a church. Go back to verse 8 now. It says this, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things I want to speak wants you as the pastor to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful. Again, what are we supposed to be careful to do? Verse 8, engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now notice what he says, verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. First thing God expects of us in this last section is guard and protect the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. You know what was happening already in the church, first century. 
There's, there's, there's people coming in. They were dividing the church. They were bringing in all this controversy. They were bringing in false teachers. They were bringing in Judaizers that were legalists and saying, you've got to do this to be really safe. That's not the grace of God. You've got to get circumcised and do dietary laws and legalism. And here's what Paul says to Titus as the pastor of this church. He says, guard and protect the unity of the church. And when a, when a factious man comes in, warn him once, warn him twice, and then have nothing to do with them. I, I like the NIV version of this. Look, go, go to Titus chapter 3, 10, 11. It says this. Here's how we're supposed to operate. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such a per- person is warped and sinful, they're self-condemned. Now that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? No, it's not. Because Satan's goal is to divide and cause negative division within every church of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because if he gets a church going divided and split and controversy and conflicts, he's got a paralyzed church, and that church won't do anything for the cause of Christ. And so we need to protect and guard the unity of the church, and here's how it works. Someone comes to you, and they start being negative. They start being divisive. They start, like, vilifying people in the church, start saying bad things about the leadership or everything else. Here's how we protect the unity of the church. You warn them by saying, hey, don't bring me that negativism. Don't bring that division to me. Go to that person yourself. Matthew 18, 15 says, go to the person in private and deal with that person. Don't bring that stuff to me. Go to the person you have an issue with. And then if they keep coming to you and keep trying to be divisive with you, don't be an accomplice. (laughs) Don't be an entertainer of that division or negativism. Point them back to the person and then it actually says, if they keep being divisive, they warn them once, warn them twice, and what does it say? Don't have anything to do with them. Stay away from them. That's important because it's like cancer, that negativism, that division can spread unless you protect yourself from it. I remember as a young pastor, I got sucker punched. No, not literally. Someone physically didn't come up to me sucker punch. But I started our first church as a 24-year-old pastor. And I thought everything would be great. I thought, man, we're going to have 1,000 people within the first year. We'll start the church from scratch. And we did. And, we, and it, it, it grew. Our first church, we had 100 people right, right in the first year. It was awesome. But I didn't guard and preserve the unity of the church like I should have. And people were coming in with different agendas. People were coming in with some false teaching, actually. And I just kind of pushed things under the carpet. And there was conflict. There was strife. There was negativism. And I went to a pastor's conference. I'll never forget. And the pastor was there who was leading the conference, leadership conference. And he had a successful, healthy, growing church. And I raised my hand, Q&A time. I said, you know, I'm in my first year as a pastor, and there's conflict. There's some controversy going on in this church. There's negativism. And he, and, and he said, well, are you practicing Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11? I said, what is that? And he goes, you warn someone that's causing problems and conflict, you warn them once, and they keep causing conflict and negativity and division in your church, you warn them twice, they keep causing negativity and conflict, deal with them. Don't push it under the carpet, deal with it, and address it and confront it. And that's good advice. But it's not just for the pastor, it's for all of us. Because Psalm 133 verse 1 says this. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in what? Jesus prayed for the church three times in his high priestly prayer. He prayed three specific times. Father, let them be one as you and I are one. Father, he prayed this. Father, perfect Christians in the church in unity and let them have a unity like you and I, Father, have unity. So let's protect that. Amen? Amen? 
Let's close up our, our chapter now. It says this. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing's lacking for them. Let our people, here it is again, also learn to engage in what? There it is. Engage in what, church? Good deeds. And notice, as you're doing good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they might not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with, here's the southern, grace be with y'all. Grace be with y'all. Amen. All right, amen. We got a southern over there. Just said amen. Amen. We got a northern over there. Just said amen too. Unity in the body. I love it. But listen, church, the last thing God expects of us is not only to engage in good deeds, but to meet pressing needs. I love our church. I think we got a great church here. It's not perfect. We got issues too, but we got a great church. And one of the things that makes us a great church here at Calvary Chapel is we're not afraid to meet pressing needs. I love our U Turn for Christ. I love the fact that we get calls all the time, every week of the year, we get calls from distressed wives or distressed parents, and they got a pressing need because they got a son or they got a husband or they have a friend that's struggling and drowning in either alcohol or drugs, and we got a place here for them. It's called U-Turn for Christ. And we say, send your son, send your husband, and we're going to meet that pressing need. We're going to help them get free from alcohol and drugs, and we're going to do something about that. We're going to engage in good deeds in that way. We're going to help them get set free in Jesus' name. I love the fact we're meeting pressing needs like that. I love the fact that we have a food pantry where 100 families a month are getting food from us. We're engaging in good deeds, and they come to our food pantry on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we give them a whole big box of food because that's a pressing need. I love the fact that we are able to help people in that way because Christians, we're supposed to be engaging in good deeds. Amen? I remember uh, last week I had, it was interesting, I was, I was in my office doing my study and stuff, and a lady came in, and we helped her with food. We gave her a voucher for the thrift store, and that's usually about what we do because we don't want to give money to people and then not being used properly and stuff, and, and especially if we don't know them, they're not part of the church. But this lady asked to see me as the pastor, so after she got her food, uh, she came in, and um, my discernment meter's gotten pretty good after 20 years of doing U-Turn for Christ ministry. And so I'm pretty good at discerning whether someone's trying to use us or we really need to help them. And she started sharing about that she's got a 14 and a 17-year-old kid, and she just got in a car accident. She hit a deer, and she had to put a lot of her, all the money she had, she had to put it in fixing her car. Then she just lost in this last immediate time. She lost her job as a director of a preschool. And not only she lose her job, but she had to turn the internet off at her house because she couldn't even afford to pay the internet anymore. And so she was driving her kids to the grocery store, parking in the parking lot so that she could use the internet of IGA or something. And then she also just was about, on, on two days from after I was meeting with her, she was about to lose her electricity in her house. And my discernment meter saying, help, help. And so I said, okay, we'll take care of that electricity bill. Done. We're not going to let the electrical, electrical go off with your teenagers in your house. But what I also told her is this. <clears throat> you need to get a job. And we'll help you get a job. So here's how, here's how we're going to do it. You come to church this Sunday. And I know someone in the church I think can help you. And I'll make sure he's at the 11 o'clock service. Meet me at the middle door. And I'll introduce you to him. And he'll help you get a job. 
So last Sunday, I'm looking around. First service, she didn't show up. Second service, I'm out there by the Welcome Center. And guess who's walking up to our patio? This lady. And then she came in, and she sat back there in the theater seats back there. And soon, as soon as the service was over, she bolted over to the middle, middle section. And I, right away, I introduced her to a guy that's a part of our men's breakfast who's got a lot of connections, and he's an entrepreneurial kind of guy. And he says, I'm going to get her a job. And I said, well done. Let's help. Engaging in good deeds and meeting pressing needs. Amen, church? That's where we're supposed to be. God expects that from us because God meets our needs. We're to help other people too. So what did we learn this morning? Number one, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be people that are, are subject and obedient to authority. We're to be ready for every good deed. We're to not to malign people. We're to be peaceable, gentle, showing love for who? All people. Number two, what did we learn this morning? What we were. Man, we were a mess. Don't look at me like that. You were a mess too. We were all a mess, weren't we? Until we got blessed by God's grace. And that's the third thing we learned. What does God do? He loved us. He sent his son to appear in love and kindness so that we could be saved by his grace and justified by him, heirs with Christ. We're not saved according to our deeds done in righteousness. We're saved by his grace and his mercy. That's what he did. And what's he expect of us? He expects he expects this. He expects we guard and we protect the unity of his church. And he also expects of us that we engage in good deeds by meeting pressing needs. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. Amen, amen and amen. Now, this is Friends Sunday. And so every Friends Sunday, here's what we do. We talk about the gospel at the end of the message. And what I do is I show my gospel bracelet right here. So we're going to do this. The word gospel, it should be up on the screen. Put it up there, Carlton. All right. There it is, right there. It's a little bit harder to see it on my wrist. So look at the wrist. That's actually my wrist in that picture, too. So gospel. The middle picture is the gospel. You know what the gospel means? It means good news. And here's the good news. Every color on that bracelet represents a part of the good news. The first good news is, the, 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 is white. And the white represents purity. And the white represents the purity of God's love for you. The good news is that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. That's the purity of God's love for you. But the white also represents the purity of God's holiness. God is holy, the scripture says. And the scripture says there's angels around his throne singing, holy, holy, holy. And that's a problem for God a little bit because we have an issue. It's called sin. And that's the next color. Next color is, is black. And it represents the darkness of our sin. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. It means separation from God. And the Bible says very clear, all men have <clears throat> sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God loves us, but his holiness, because of his holiness in our sinfulness, we're separated from him. But the next color represents the good news of what God did to solve our sin problem. What's the next color? It's red. What red represents is right here, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ shed for our sins. And he said on the cross, it is finished, paid in full. God demonstrates his own love for us while we're yet sinners. Christ died for us. But there's another color there, it's blue. <clears throat> blue represents, just like the sky is blue, blue represents heaven. 
<clears throat> and here's the good news. The gospel is good news. The good news is this. God wants all people to go to heaven. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The Bible says in, in Timothy, it says that God desires for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But here's what you need to do if you want to be saved. You need to trust Christ for your salvation. The Bible actually says you need to receive Christ, but as many as received him, he gives the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Here's what you need to do. The Bible says you need to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, hey, today's your day. Today is your day where you can receive Christ. And I'd encourage you to do that. Don't put that off. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Trust Christ today. And I'll help you do that. During our prayer time, uh, I'm just going to ask you to do one simple thing. If you want to receive Christ, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand and say, Pastor John, pray for me. Pray that I might open my heart to Jesus. Pray that I might confess him as my Lord. Because I want you to know that you know that you know that you know that you're right with God. If you're not right with God, make today the day you get right with God. And I'll help you do that this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you up front. I'm, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand so I could pray for you to receive Christ. And then I'll help you do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, God, for another Sunday. God, it better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that we could celebrate Jesus in this place. Thank you, God, that we could remember things we're supposed to remember, Lord. And Father, help us to put into practice some of these things we've learned this morning. Help us be, to be people that are living out obedience. Help us to be people that are living out engaging in good deeds and meeting pressing needs, Lord. Help us to be people that are peaceable and gentle, not maligning other people, but blessing other people, God. Help us to remember, too, where we came from before Christ. Help us to remember the the way that you delivered us from enslavement to sin and pleasure and self-destruction, Lord. Thank you, God, for saving us from that. And thank you, God, that you made a way for salvation in the way is Jesus. Thank you that when he came, the goodness and kindness of God appeared to this world and that we're saved by his work on the cross and your grace exhibited through that and our trust in Jesus Christ. And the moment we trust Christ, we're justified. We're declared righteous. Thank you for that, Lord. Father, help us to protect the unity that you desire for this church, Lord. Help us to be people of peace, Lord, that are bringing peace instead of conflict and controversy. Help us to be people of peace. And Father, I pray for anybody that might be here this morning that doesn't have peace with you, God. If they were to die today, they wouldn't know for certain they're going to heaven. Today you want them to get an assurance of that, Father. Today you want to come into their heart and forgive them. You want to give them the gift of salvation, Lord. And I sense you might be knocking on some people's hearts even this morning, God. And if you're here this morning and you want to get right with the Lord and you want to receive Christ, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to raise your hand and say, Pastor John, pray for me. Pray that I might get right with God and receive Christ. Praise the Lord right here in the middle. These two right here in the middle. Keep your hands up. I'll pray for you in one second. Anybody else, if you want to receive Christ, you want assurance of your salvation, you want to be forgiven, you want to believe in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord this morning, praise the Lord right over here on the side. Praise God. Keep your hand up. I'll pray for you in one minute. Anybody else, if God's knocking, don't put it off. 
praise, praise God right up here in the back corner, back here. Praise the Lord. Keep your hand up. I'll pray for you in one second. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Love to pray for you this morning. Okay, for those that have your hands raised, I'm going to pray for you. I want you to do something. I want you to stand right now and I'll pray for you. Don't be afraid to stand. Stand right now. Jesus publicly died for you. You could stand and I'll pray for you in just one second. Go ahead and stand up. All right, pray this prayer right now out loud. Church, you can pray with them also. Just pray this prayer out loud. Lord Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I trust you, Jesus, to be my Savior and my Lord. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. And I will live for you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand, church. Let's all stand.